0: welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Podcast. I am your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another excellent guest to introduce to you. Good friend of mine, Pace Mannion. Pace Mannion is a retired pro basketball player who played in the NBA and overseas in Italy. There he met his wife, Gaia, and together they had their son, Nico, who plays for the University of Arizona and is eligible for the 2020 NBA draft. Pace has done broadcasting for the Utah Jazz, doing pre and post game analysis. He currently enjoys the warm weather of Scottsdale Arizona uh Pace Mannion welcome to the show
1: thanks Casey man thanks for having me appreciate
0: it Uh, it's so great to talk to you um always an interesting time that I get to spend with you and ask you a few questions and I'm going to lead off um by asking you what is it like to have a fan club you have a fan club
1: (laughs) you know it was kind of awkward and a little embarrassing to be honest (laughs) you know they 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 said that uh that group out of houston I, I remember coming back from i was overseas playing and i came back with the jazz and we went to play in houston and a couple hours before the game i'm out you know just stretching and i see these signs up welcome back and i'm looking at all this stuff and i'm like man i wonder who here in houston has been out and i couldn't remember if somebody had been heard or and then they, they start chanting my name during warm-ups and the game and i have no idea who they are and i uh, just figured out there are a bunch of students from rice who claimed that I fell down in the NCAA game and they laughed and they liked it. And they just, you know, became a fan, created this fan club, but they came to almost (laughs) all the games in Houston. They were probably about a hundred strong when they were there. Um, And I think actually a couple of times them chanting so much made Frank put me in when I was with the jazz.
0: That's hilarious.
1: Was good. That's great. You know, it was uh yeah, it was a lot of fun.
0: Great motivation. That's awesome. Um tell me a little bit about your college career. You started at the University of Utah and actually got to play a few very high profile games in in the tournament March Madness.
1: Yeah. You know, I think we uh my freshman year, we didn't make the tournament up because we had to forfeit a few games because we had uh one of our players had taken a summer course that wasn't a valid course. And so we were really good. That was with, you know, we had chambers and brains and, and, a, and a very strong team. And then my sophomore year, we came back and finished 25 and five, went to the tournament, um, got beaten the sweet 16. And it was our only home. The, the, they were holding the, the regionals that year in Salt Lake. So we played North Carolina at home and they beat us by five. That's with, uh, that was the year before Michael got there and they went to the finals and ended up getting beat by Isaiah Thomas in Indiana. So, and then my senior year, we were, you know, I think we were lucky a little bit. You know, we actually had the worst record in the tournament, uh, but we had played so well down the stretch that we won the conference and there wasn't a conference tournament. Um, and one of those last games, which is, I think one of the best games I ever played between Utah and BYU was a triple overtime down in Provo that we ended up pulling out. And, uh, and that got us uh, the championship um, for the WAC. And we ended up, we beat Illinois. Uh, they had Derek Harper, who was, you know, a longtime NBA player, and then we ended up beating UCLA the next round. And they were—they you know, had five or six guys off the team that went to the NBA. And then we ran into Thurl, and he reminds me all the time, you know, that he ended my college career, <laughs> and we and we laugh. Or when we were on the set doing the the jazz shows, you know, he would just kind of tap his ring on the on the set table. That's you know, and go, I know, I, I, I know you don't have to remind me, but, you know, we get along so well and we become such great friends that, you know, it was, uh, I was, I was actually at that championship game in New Mexico when they won it. And I was pulling hard for them because I just, I played both those teams that year. We played Houston in the, in, in the, in Japan um, at a tournament we played in over there. And it was just a, it was, it was a good time. And it was, the college was a lot of fun becomes more business, you know, than high school, obviously, and then the pros is just all business. But, you know, it was that was a, that was a lot of fun, a lot of good people I played with, good coaches, you know, great fans there at, at Utah. Obviously, where, you know, that arena was was mostly full all the time, especially when we were good, and uh, I enjoyed those days.
0: That's great. What was it like to transition to the NBA? Uh,
1: you know, the NBA is is um, it's a lot of work. I mean, it's a lot more than people think. You know, everybody looks at it, they see the glamorous side of, you know, just the money and and back then it wasn't even that because, you know, I mean, the first round picks were making three hundred thousand dollars, which guys would mock, you know, they just laugh at you today. Cause not even you know, minimum wage now in the NBA is almost nine hundred. So and that was the highest. Three hundred was, you know, guys making, you know, John Stockton and Malone getting drafted were were making three hundred thousand. So it, it's a business. And you have to treat it like that. You know, you have to stay in shape year round. It's, it's a lot of work. It's the, everything you think it's supposed to be. But I think the game is pretty much the same as far as, you know, it was a lot more physical than it is now. I think the game back in the 80s when I played from 83 to 89 was, in my opinion, some of the best basketball players to ever play and one of the best eras to be in. You know, I, I was lucky enough to play during those times. I got to guard all the greats. You know, I was I got the guard magic. I got the guard, Larry bird. I got the guard, Michael Jordan. I got the guard, Dr. J, you know, you name guys that are, are icons and legends, um, you know, and, I, and and Dominic Wilkins, you, you can go down the list of guys that I got to play against and, and, and got to compete with. And it was, it was fun. I think the difference for me was I never really got comfortable, you know, in the NBA setting. Um, and I think there's a lot of guys like that because you never get enough solid minutes to really get comfortable on the floor. Um, you know, when you're playing 10 minutes a game and those 10 minutes are, you know, three, three and a half minute spurts, you're just barely breaking a sweat and you're coming back out. And so you have to figure out how to be successful in that. And that was always difficult for me. You know, the games I started, um, you know, I I played games in New Jersey at the point guard spot. I started at the point for about six games and, and averaged about 16, and I got comfortable because I was playing 35 to 40 minutes. And I think that's the key for any player, is to get out there and just feel like, okay, I'm going to be out here whether I miss a shot or, or make a shot or have a turnover or not a turnover. I'm going to play because the coach trusts me. And that's something you have to – and maybe it was me that I wasn't good enough to gain that trust of the coaches I was with, but it was, it was hard. you know. And I, not that I didn't enjoy it, not that I didn't learn a lot. Um, great experience. Um, But those are things I tried to change mentally with Nico, you know, as he was growing up. And I will talk about him later. But, you know, so those are the, but the NBA was, you know, the people I met, the fraternity I got to be involved in, uh, I have no complaints.
0: I mean, that would be challenging. I don't think I ever really considered that. If you're only playing in, you know, very brief periods of time, how do you get into the flow of the game? That would be very challenging.
1: That's, yeah, that's, and if you watch guys, you know, and you see, you know, people look at stats. Well, he played 15 minutes and he only scored four points. Well, yeah, but that 15 minutes might've been, you know, four minutes, six minutes, five minutes, you know, in the third quarter, fourth quarter, or even four times, you know, smaller minute increments. Because really as a guy coming off the bench, unless you're a sixth man or seventh man, that's playing, you know, solid minutes, you're coming off the bench just to give that starter a rest. Well, if you look at the starters minutes in the NBA, those guys are playing between, you know, 30, 32 to 36 So you're taking 12 to 15 minutes that you're, that's where you get. And there might be two guys splitting those minutes just so they can keep guys happy. So it's, it's not an easy job. It's tough mentally. And it's a grind. And, and, and maybe mentally, I just wasn't tough enough to deal with that. Um, And it was, it was very difficult for me. You know, there were games, I remember games with, you know, with the jazz, I'll use that. But you know, there were games I didn't play in the first half. And there was a stretch there my second year with the team where you know, I wasn't playing in the first half. And then in the second half, I'd go in and I'd, you know, I just went in with the attitudes, I'm just going to go out and play hard and I'm, I'm going to try to score all the time. I just got a little, because I, I thought if I'm making shots, I got to stay on the floor, you know. So I went through a stretch where I averaged about 15 a game all in the second half because that's what I did. And then, you know, for whatever reason, coaches make changes and and, and stop playing guys or doing things. And that's just, that's just the business. You don't know what the reasons are all the time. And, you know, you just have to go, okay, that's, That's the decision they made. And you have to live with that. It's not like you can, unless you're a superstar and demand things. And I I obviously wasn't a superstar. So you just have to go along and roll with the punches and and make the best of it and be ready if somebody does get hurt and, you know, mentally stay in shape and and physically be ready when the time's called. Wow. Uh,
0: The list of players that you named, I mean, that's boggling. And, And like you said, you could just go on and on. Who, who are you the, like, who did you least like to be posted up? with like who did you least like to defend
1: Uh, um you know it's funny because i've been asked this question because you know when i got drafted the warriors drafted me in the second round and they drafted me uh, for defensive purposes because i was more of a i was you know i was a bigger guard at six seven um that could defend and um i only averaged 13 points a game in college and so it wasn't like i was going in as a big scorer so but the guys that i hated you know obviously you know Michael Jordan, everybody thinks says would be the worst guy to, you know, and he was, he was tough back then. He wasn't the shooter. He ended up being, so he was a little easier to guard because he just wanted to go to the basket. Um, but he was still obviously a, a difficult guy to defend. But the one guy that nobody remembers and he only played about six years and he played with um, Philadelphia and he played with their, their championship team was Andrew Tony. And he was about a six, four guard who, had a great mid-range and could get where he wanted to get. He was stronger. And and he was the toughest guy in the league that I would I would have to guard. And and you hated playing against him. And if you talk to anybody during that era, and I remember watching uh one of the open court episodes with Barkley and, and Kerr and and some of the guys and even uh Reggie Reggie Miller and some of these guys and they're talking about who was the toughest guy to guard. And they're going through all these guys. And then Barkley just laughed and he goes, you guys are just forgetting the toughest guy of all time. And when he said Andrew, Tony, they all just nodded in agreement. Like, yeah, you're right. He was, you know, he was the guy. And, And that's who I've always said, because he was just, he was impossible to guard. He could go to a spot and pull up on a dime and just shoot over you. And he was just really, really quick. And it was, it was difficult. And he was playing with a lot of good players that really helped his game too. But you know it's the one name that has always stood out to me is and everybody, not a not a well-known guy in, unless you're an NBA guy, but because you could always go down the line of saying, hey, magic was you know magic was tough, but he was looking more to pass and keep everybody involved. Bird was a killer. you know he wanted to score on you every time he got it, um, and talk trash while he did it. Uh, you know those are the guys that you remember. Dominic Wilkins was, you know, one of the best athletes to ever play the game. So you, you know you go down the list, and even the guys that you you know you think are just you know the Danny Ainge's of the NBA who are all great great guys but get overlooked because they're playing with Mikhail and Parrish and and Bird you know and that group they're with but those guys you know you put them on another team and say hey Danny I need you to score twenty a night Danny would have done that they were all that good they were just giving up part of their game for the benefit of their of their team and so you had to always know. That guy, your garden is capable of giving you 25 to 30, just like he was in college. You know, he was a great player in college as well. So there were, and, and people, you know, they joke about that guy on the bench is trash. Well, that guy on the bench, you know, you bring him into the lifetime gym in Salt Lake and put him in a pickup game is going to embarrass everybody forever. You know, those guys are all great players in the NBA. Um, a lot of them just don't get an opportunity to show it. Wow. Um, it's been a cool year. Um,
0: for basketball documentaries. We've gotten to watch the Michael Jordan documentary, which is great. I've gotten to listen to the Dream Team tapes. Um, It's really interesting to learn about how, you know, different the game was, or at least the players were different. Um, And and I see, you know, you played at least with the Pistons in 89, and I think Pistons and 89, and that is, I I don't know, (laughs) terrifying. (laughs) Terrifying. I wouldn't want to be in full football pads to be anywhere near the court (laughs) <laughs>
1: around them they were uh you know I was there for a month I was only there that's a year that I was coming off of uh, I'd had a screw put in my left foot so I was coming off an injury and I was getting back in shape and I was playing in the CBA that year and Joe Dumars broke his hand and Chuck Daly called and said hey you know we're going to bring you up so I went up there for a month and it was an it was one of the most interesting months that I've ever had um you know I was in a locker room and I was seated between Rick Mahorn and John Sally, who were great guys, hilarious, you know, fun to be around, but were business when it came to, you know, the basketball court. Um, you know, with Isaiah Rodman at that time was still fairly normal, hadn't, you know, started wearing wigs and, and, and he hadn't, yeah, he, he hadn't met Madonna yet. And so all those things were, were there, but they were, um, they had a mindset of, and they were the physicality that they played with. And most teams in the NBA played that way. You know, most teams in the NBA back then, because there wasn't, you know, you could you could still hand check. You could still bump guys going through the lane. Now you have to let guys run through. You can't, you know, alter a path, which to me is ridiculous. You know, if you ran by a big, you never just ran by him. Every big you ran by, if you were cutting through the lane, he threw a forearm and just bumped you off your path. You can't, that's not allowed anymore. So that era was a lot more physical than it is right now. I don't know if there was even, a, even anything known as a flagrant foul because a foul was a foul, you got up and you played. That just it wasn't We didn't have all that. but they were um, watching them practice and how Chuck Daly dealt with them, you know, because you had some real personalities. I mean, you had to deal with Isaiah Thomas, you had you know you had Vinny coming off the bench, the microwave. You had James Edwards on the bench. You had had guys that were all good players and you had to manage egos. And at the time, Adrian Dantley was still there. You know, when I was there, AD hadn't been traded that year. He got traded later in that season, the year they won the championship for Mark Aguirre. But, you know, they were obviously, you know, they won the championship that year and the year after. So you know how, how mentally tough they were, how physically tough they were because it's a grind to go through that era, just like it is now, a grind. But I think physically it's a little easier now than it was then because of the, the physicality that they let, they let you play with. I think the NBA has changed because they like, the, they like the open court. They like the fast breaks. They like all the dunks. They've opened it up to where, you know, hard fouls, you can't do anymore because you get suspended. And so it, it's changed. And, and they've done that for the fans, and it's, the game is more exciting. It's just not as physical as it used to be. You know, John Stockton would foul out in this era You know so many times because he was a physical guard that set hard screens that did all the things right and people hated playing against him because they said he was dirty no he just played physical and most 6'1 guards weren't doing that um so in this in this era he would be he'd stand out like a sore thumb because of, of how he plays
0: wow that's super interesting um who was your favorite coach to play under and what did you learn from them
1: favorite coach um you know I played for a lot of good coaches, you know, and, and NBA coaches. I think my favorite was was probably Dale Harris uh, when I was with the Bucks. He was um, straightforward. He was always very calm. He wasn't a, a yeller. He was, uh, you know, almost, almost to his detriment, I think, at times, because during the locker room pregame, you know, you'd almost fall asleep because he was just so relaxed all the time. Um, but knew the game inside and out. Um, and he was the guy that I, you know, he just told you what I liked is, and I think this is a a lost art in coaching is I don't think coaches identify roles very well, you know, and he was one that I think with players, he identified and told them what he needed them to do to get minutes, you know, and I was playing, you know, I, I was in the NBA I played three positions. So, you know, I could play the one, I could play the two, I could play the three. So it was good for me because I could always find minutes, especially on that team, because there was always, you know, somebody was hurt, you know, I could fill in. If Terry Cummings was down, you know, I started, played 42 minutes against the Lakers one night because Terry was out at small forward. Didn't mean I played the 42 minutes at the small forward, but it meant I started there, and then as they rotated, I just would move to the two, or I could move to the one, or, but I was on the floor for 42 of the 48 minutes. And it was always, you know, you like that. And Dell was always good about saying, Hey, this is what I need from you. And, and it helps. I think that really helps a player to understand if I do these things, I'll get an opportunity. And that's as a player, that's all you want. Just give me an opportunity to get on the floor um, and let me prove myself. And I think Dell was, was the best at that. And I just, have always liked Dell's even, even to this day, if I see Dell, you know, we, it's great. We sit down, we have great conversations. Um, and he's just a, he's a solid guy. Not that, you know, not that Frank was a horrible guy or, you know, some of these guys were, were this, that's the guy that stands out in my mind as as my favorite NBA coach. Sure.
0: That's awesome. Um, what was the difference in the game going from the NBA to Italy?
1: Um, you know, another, that's a, you know, that's a good question because I went to Italy and obviously the rules were completely different on some of the, on some aspects and I'll explain that, but the, when I went there. Um, the coach that brought me over, I was replacing a player who was an Italian legend. He'd gone from the team I went to in Cantu, he'd gone to Milan to play. He's the all-time leading, he's the first or second all-time leading scorer in Italy. So I was coming in there, replacing a the guy that was averaging like almost 30 a game. And here I am, never been a true scorer. I mean, I played in the CBA a while and averaged, you know, 25, 26 a game, but this was a, a new thing. And I came in and he said, look, you're going to have to average at least 20 for me to keep you. You know, next year, and but he set that standard of okay, I need, and he told me it's like we just talked about with Dell. This is what I need from you. I need you to average twenty, but I need to get all these guys involved because you're you're passing, your IQ, you can help all these guys on this Italian team. You know, our last guy was just a scorer. He didn't do all the other things, but he could score. So you know, my first year, I think I averaged nineteen a game, and 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 he was. We did really well. We finished third. We got beat in the semifinals. Come back the second year. Um, again, go to the semifinals, we get beat, but we win a European championship that year. You know, we played uh, Madrid in the finals, you know, Stanley Roberts, Carl Herrera, guys that were in the NBA. um, And great experience, played four years on that team and then went to other teams. But the difference in the the basketball was because they don't have all the athletes that we have in the NBA um, is they are... They move better without the basketball. They, you know, drive and kick. All of them can shoot because they're not great one-on-one guys. So everybody learns how to shoot the basketball. And they know how to play in a system and move and cut and and get open because they don't have the ball skills to break guys down one-on-one. There are very few Italians that do that. And so it was a completely different style, but it was something that I didn't have any trouble fitting into because it's kind of like how we played in college. You know, we had a bunch of good guys. We ran a motion offense, and it was equal opportunity. You just knew who the stars were that were going to take the shots. And so that's what it was like in Italy. And I, you know, immediately became one of the better players in Italy um, and in Europe. um, Had offers after my third year there to come back to the NBA. I had two teams offer me a three-year guaranteed deal at about half a million a year. But, you know, over there, I was making more than that they were giving me a house they were giving me a car they were paying my taxes it was why would i why would i leave this to take half a million dollars have to go find a house have to buy a car have to pay my taxes and financially this wasn't as much as i wanted to and my ego wanted to come back to prove that i belonged in the nba and i could come out and be a scorer in the nba just like i was in europe you know it was just i decided you know my path is here i'm just going to ride this out and i played till i was 42 yeah, seriously, I loved, why would you I, leave that? That sounds amazing. Yeah, and I, and I loved it over there. And, you know, and, and luckily, you know, you don't know why God is taking you down certain paths or why you make certain decisions in your life. But, you know, a year later, you know, I, I meet Gaia, um, you know, in 95. And then in 2001, we have Nico. So those things kind of, you know, without staying, that never happens. That's right. And, you know, I miss out on a lot of, a lot of things that I wouldn't have been, been available for, but it was, you know, Italy was, was great. And I, I, I love Italy. I thought when I retired, I would live there. Um, but it just kind of, it went downhill, you know, economically and with other, you know, social issues that they're having. And it just wasn't a place I wanted to stay or, or raise, raise my son.
0: Sure. Well, it sounds like an amazing experience while you were there. Um, tell me a little bit about, transitioning into broadcasting you together with <laughs> Thurl, <laughs> made i have to say like the most watchable pre and post jazz game shows that i've ever seen you guys had this ability to banter back and forth and you could call each other out without you know being combative what was that like
1: well you know when i got back when i retired um and got back i i, I didn't know what i wanted to do and so I, I, the year off, and then I you know, did an, invested in a company. and worked there. And, um, and then I got a call from the radio station. Uh, they said, hey, um, Bowler Jack can't do this, this segment with, with Monson. Can you come down and do it? So I, you know, I thought, yeah, sure, I'll go down. First it was Danny. They wanted Danny to do it, and, but Danny didn't want to do it by himself, so he asked me to go with him. So I said, sure, I'll come with you. And that kind of led into you know, the radio stuff that I did for a year. Um, with, I had the Red and Blue show with Alema. And, you know, one day I get a call from the Jazz saying, hey, let's talk. And so I went over there and talked and, you know, about getting back into, you know, working with the Jazz and doing some things. And that turned into, and that was with Larry and Kevin O'Connor. Um, Larry Miller, you know, rest in peace was, you know, I, I love Larry. We got along great. And, um, you know, I loved being around him. He was just, you know, another guy that would tell you where you stood, what he needed. Um, and he was one of the best. So when they called me and said, hey, we're looking to replace, <clears throat> we're going to, we want to replace Mark. And they said, we want you to be kind of like you are on the radio. Because we had that red and blue show, so I was obviously the Utah side, and Lemma was the BYU side. And I was pretty combative with, with the BYU fans because that's what they wanted. Have I mean, that's be. what the radio have station really wanted because, yep. you know, you, you might have all those people down in Provo that hate you, but they listen every day. You know, and... You know, so some days a lemma would come in and say, man, I couldn't, what, what are we going to prepare today? I didn't have anything to prepare. And he goes, well, just, you know, so I, I said, I got you covered. And I'd throw out a statement and the phone lines would light up and they'd be yelling at me. And, you know, and it was, it was fun. It was, I never said anything that I didn't believe. You know, I had a lot of insight from BYU people that nobody ever knew about. Um, um, people that, that were in the know in Provo um, that I would call and ask questions to. And they say, you know, I can't tell you that, but if you ask enough questions, they would they could lead me down the path of what I was trying to get to without really telling me and letting me figure it out so I could say it on the radio. And I'd say that on the radio and people would call in and say you're an idiot page. You have no idea what you're talking about. And then two days later it would play out that way and I would always laugh. You know, and I'd say, how come you guys don't call back and say, hey, you were right. Sorry about that. You just, you know, you want to just jump. But it was it was part of a stick, you know, and a lemma loved it. And it was what was bad for the BYU fans that year was it's the year that, you know, Utah went to the Sweet 16 with Bogut Alex Smith was the quarterback, and they went undefeated and were the first team to get into a BCS game. I mean, all the things that could have gone wrong for BYU and right for Utah happened. So I was probably overly hated um, because I just kind of rubbed that in for a year. Um, And then that turned into you know going on to the jazz show with Thurl. And they just asked me to be not just pro-jazz. They wanted a show of, hey, if you see something, you and Thurl can argue that. So it was kind of like Thurl was good cop, I was bad cop. And I still took heat from that from the jazz fans because they didn't believe I was a true fan. But it was kind of my role on that show to pull show, okay, hey look, we we can sugarcoat it and say they're you know they're they're, they're playing well, but they're not. You know they're having a bad night tonight. And you say that at halftime that people would get upset with that, but it's they were paying me to give my opinion and analyze a game and and talk about it. And then and you were right, Thurl and I could argue anything. And the minute you go to break, still be best friends. It was never personal. It was never ugly. You know, we joked at each other. We made fun of each other. And people would ask us all the time. You know, I could be sitting in a restaurant. And I remember one night I'm sitting at the oyster bar with my wife out in South Jordan. And a guy walks up and he says, excuse me, can I ask you a question? And I knew exactly where he was going. And I said, I can't stand him. (laughs) <laughs> you know, if you want to know the truth. And the guy started to walk away, and, and and guy just hit me. Like, you can't do that. And I said, hey, come here. I'm just messing with you. I said, Thurl and I are best friends. We really like each other. But in the show, sometimes it comes across that we don't. You know, but they would ask, you know, David James, and he said, I can't tell you if they like each other because that will hurt our ratings, you know. And so it was just a, a, a joke between Thurl and I that people really think we don't like each other, you know. And we would just... You know, believe what you want to believe. But I mean, Thurl and I talk probably once every week, every 10 days. We touch base with each other. We have for ever since I left seven years ago to move here. Now, we've always kept in contact. And, you know, I think we're, once the draft is over and Nico goes somewhere, I think we're planning on moving back to Salt Lake. And, you know, I'll reach out to the Jazz and say, hey, you know, I would love to get back in there and yeah. I do that with Thurl. Wow. Because would be- it would be, it would be fun. And I think we, I think we had a good show. Absolutely. I think we, we complimented each other to where it was, you know, we, we got close to the line, but it was never, we never crossed it. And, uh, and we knew each other so well, we knew, you know, where we could go with things, what was funny, what wasn't. And, and it was just, uh, it was a lot of fun. And now that team is, is so good. It'd be fun to do those games because they have a lot of interesting characters on that team that it'd be fun to, to delve into and, and do shows, uh, you know, about what they're going through.
0: Man, well, we would love to have you back. Like, selfishly, it would be great to have you um, closer to us, and it would be great to have that show back. You guys did an amazing job. Um, Thanks. I want to go back to March, um, March of 2020, which seems like a decade ago. Um, Monday, <laughs> night, <laughs> Monday night, I go to a jazz game. They play the Raptors. On Wednesday night, I see some news article that pops up that says, a jazz game is canceled, and I think uh, that's – the weirdest thing I've ever heard. And then the next day, the dominoes start falling. The NBA is canceled. March Madness is canceled. All of these things start going offline as the world is blowing up. And then a few months later, the NBA comes out with a plan to go to Florida and to be in a bubble and to play out the season. And, you know, at the time, the cases in Florida are are rising. And I'm just thinking like, boy, with, with the lifestyle that these guys live and with what's going on in the world, how in the world can they pull this off successfully? There's no way this is going to go down and, and find a conclusion. And sure enough, two days ago, the Lakers are um, crowned NBA champions and the NBA, they did it. I mean, they pulled it off. Do you have any um, comment on that or, or insight on that?
1: Well, you know, obviously since Nico's declared for the draft, we followed everything, you know, a little differently than we would have. So, um, but you have to, you know, give credit to to Adam Silver and the NBA for, you know, putting guys in a bubble, not one positive test, um, keeping everybody safe, um, pulling it off with letting families get in there and still not getting a case, um, and keeping guys. You know, how hard would that be mentally for players to be stuck away from everybody for that long?
0: Oh, agreed.
1: And and just be alone. So you know, give credits to the players as well for. Especially you know Miami and, and LA for going through it all the way to the finals and 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 having to be in that bubble, uh, it would be very very difficult. I think it helped some guys. You know, the joke here in Phoenix was, yeah, Phoenix went in there and went eight and because you got them away from old Scot- old, old town Scottsdale, you know, because they couldn't go out at night. And you know, you laugh about that, but you know, you take away all the distractions, you take away you know the the bar scene, the club scene, the girls, the the nightlife, and all you have is you know, your teammates, you know, one, you, you, you bond more because you're actually going to spend more time with those guys. You get more rest, you take care of your body, you know, all those things that you might push to the side because you have other things to do here. Every one of those teams, you know, got to, got to be a little better at. So, but I just, you know, give credit to those. The NBA, I think they were, you know, outstanding. Nobody else has been able to pull it off, even the NFL, You know, baseball, you've seen them all have to postpone games and do things. But it was, you know, back in March when that happened, from the NBA to college, you know, I watched, you know, I just felt bad for, you know, the college kids. You know, here you are. um, I'll use Nico because he's the, you know, best example I have is Nico plays one game in the Pac-12 tournament um, in Vegas. They beat Washington. They move to the, you know, they're going to play USC the next day. And the next day you get up and it's, you know, First it's, hey, they are going to cancel the Pac-12 tournament, you know, and then two hours later, you know, because, you know, they just said, okay, we're going to head back to, to Tucson and prepare for the, you know, NC2A tournament. Well, you know, two hours later, that's gone too. So within a matter of, you know, a few hours, the dreams of all those athletes was yanked and it was gone. So they don't get to do that. You know, you, you know nico gets on a bus because their charter plane wasn't planning on they were planning on going into the semis or finals obviously wasn't coming back to vegas to get them so they hopped on a bus there were only five players on there because all the other players scattered and went home because there's no reason to go back to school um and it was it was really awkward it was just an eerie feeling of what was going to happen and you know with this virus you know hopefully they're coming out with a vaccine soon all the the drugs they've, they've come up with that, that have, are helping people, you know, and lowering the death rate, all those things are great. Um, but the NBA and all these professional sport teams can't survive unless they can get fans in the seats. And okay. so they're going to have to be able to find a way to do that. And I think the NBA is is way ahead of everybody in that aspect. I think they'll be the first ones, even though they're indoors, you know, it's not a, you know, you're not playing baseball, you're not playing football, it's you're inside. Uh, but I think the NBA will figure that out here you know, in the next few months, um, getting ready for the upcoming season.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. They've already proven they can pull it off. So it'll be interesting to see how they can incorporate uh, fans into the mix as well. Um, Before we close out this section, I just want to ask, since you have been at, at, you know, in the past, such a high level of basketball, you made it to the NBA, played in Italy successfully for so many years. What advice would you give to somebody who is trying to um, make their way into those more advanced leagues and work their way up to be the very best?
1: well I think obviously you know your work ethic is is going to take you a long way what God blesses you with you know not everybody got to be six eight you know 270 like LeBron you know coming into the NBA so it, you, that athleticism you're born with is going to play a big role if, if you're if basketball or a professional sport is is what you're looking to do but I think I think the one thing that um, everybody misses out on is just you know being in the moment as an athlete and it's something i've tried to get nico to understand you can't control tomorrow you can't control yesterday you know what today is the only day you have to get better whether it's mentally physically whatever you're doing today's the day and you know enjoy the workouts enjoy the practices enjoy the games and you know take time to enjoy that most kids you know whether they're they're on a jv team this year and the season's getting ready to start and they're just, they can't wait till they're playing varsity. No, enjoy that JD season. Enjoy that, that time, figure out what's going to make you better. How do I get to be a starter on that varsity team next year? How do, but enjoy what you're doing now. And, and I think it's, it's, is lost because everybody's looking to, you know, everybody last year when Nico's Arizona, they were looking past that year, looking at the NBA. Well, no, enjoy Nico, it's going to be a struggle. College is new. They're, you know, you look at every freshman out there. They all struggled. None of them shot it well. None of them played great. They all had ups and downs. That's just part of the game. It, but you have to enjoy that. Enjoy the, even the struggle. Because the struggle is where you get better. It points out, what do I need to get better at? And, and it's just lost. And nobody wants to, everybody just wants to get to the end goal. And one half of 1% get to play a professional sport. You know, there's not a lot of jobs. There's 450 NBA jobs. So do the math. It, and that's not just for the people coming out of the United States. You know, you got three or four guys to be drafted in the first round this year that are foreigners. So it's a global game. But I think kids get caught up in looking long-term. It's nice to have that long-term goal. But write down your short-term goals, live in that moment, and start checking those boxes as you go because they miss out on so many, so many fun things because they're just trying to get to the end of the game. And I I think with Nico, it's one thing we've, and he's really good at it. He's been really good at, you know, control what I can control, try to disregard what I can't and, and move forward. And that's something that's made him, you know, he's been in the limelight since he was little. So he's had to live with that pressure and he's learned how to deal with that. And I think youth, young kids, besides your athleticism and your hard work, find a way to, you know, take the distractions and get rid of them. And the last thing I would say to those kids is, Put your damn phone down, you know, social media, everything you have on that phone is their lifeline. And most kids have it in their hand all day long and can't put it away. They're on Instagram, they're on Twitter, they're wherever they're at. And I think that's one of the biggest distractions and will be one of the biggest downfalls of of the youth because they, you know, they waste so much time on the phone.
0: (laughs) I think that's all really great advice. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about Nico. I want to talk a little bit more um, about goal setting. Let's take a quick break and we'll return. Okay, Pace, I'm going to ask you to take off your Pace Mannion hat and put on your Nico's father hat. (laughs) Um, And I want to talk a little bit about a um, Sports Illustrated article that came out, um, I believe it was four and a half years ago. Um, (laughs) And in particular, a hilarious exchange that you had with your son where you asked him what the purpose (laughs) of having him was. Can you elaborate a little (laughs) bit on that? I thought that was hilarious.
1: I, I, I used to joke with Nico all the time you know, I had you so you could just give me a beer. And, <laughs> and, uh, it was, it was probably something I shouldn't have said, you know, with this, with, with Chris Ballard, who was writing the article, but it was, you know, it's just common knowledge at the house. we just laugh about it. You know, and Nico just, so he was, I was outside barbecuing, you know, Chris was over here, you know, just working on the story and getting to know the family. And, and Chris and I were out the barbecuing, I'm cooking and we're both having a beer, just talking and chatting. And I, I said Nico. And I said hey. I he walked outside. You know I said hey. Why'd I have you? You need a beer, huh? And he just you know he <laughs> laughed left. he said Chris, you need, So he grabbed a couple beers. But you know, it, I I I wasn't thinking it would be put in the article obviously because it was just kind <laughs> of an inside joke. And I took a lot of heat. My folks weren't happy with it. You know, funny um, being there LDS and you know. But it was it, to me it was just you know obviously obviously I didn't have Nico for that reason. But it was just a funny between Nico and I. And, but you know I, that's one quote in that article that I've been asked about the most, I think, is, <laughs> is that one, you know, because people laughed at that pretty hard. So it's so funny. Um but yeah, Chris Chris took it in stride. And he's, you know, as far as a writer goes, you'll never meet a better writer. Cause I'll tell you what, he took a few notes, but you know, a lot of the stuff we talked about, he was just listening and, you know, and he got, you know, that article was pretty spot on for for Nico. And, you know, he was here for four or five days, went to school with him and followed him around for, you know, ever rode on the bus with him, was at practices, just there were a lot of and he rode to and from games with Guy and I and then with Nico on the way home and got to get a real insight of the family and Nico and and I thought his article was, you know, because it was difficult to make the decision to do that article because you really want to put your kid. I told Nico when when I talked to Chris when he reached out to do the article, you know, you're thinking an article, you're thinking a page, you know, and it was a 10 page article in Sports Illustrated. And it was I said to Nico, I said, Do you really want to do this? You know, if you do this, you're putting a big bullseye on your back. And he just laughed. He said, I already got a big bullseye on my back. You know. So I said, Okay, if you want to do it, you know, we'll as a family, we made the decision to do it. And and I was I was really happy with with how it turned out because, you know, you're worried about how they're gonna portray Nico and what kind of things they're gonna say about him. But I think he, you know, he was he was really good and and uh and portrayed Nico in the light that I I I hoped he would. I agree.
0: I thought the article was very well done, and I thought it was very endearing, and I thought it was a very honest and accurate description of at least what I've seen with you know your interactions and how you guys do things in the family. When did you first know that Nico um, was something special? Excuse me, special on the basketball court.
1: Um, when Nico was in fifth grade, we took a team from Utah. Um. To, um, it was a it was a tournament with every every team from every state had had teams coming. I can't remember if it was an AAU event, if it was a, but Chris Jones coached. Um, and Ryland, who's at the U, playing at the U now, Ryland Jones, a point guard at the U, um, was on the team, and then we took a bunch of other kids. One was uh, uh, we took. I think one other kid made it to play college basketball. Um, and I can't remember if Jeremy Dowdle was on that team, but um, I think he's going to go to BYU. But we went back to, to Florida, and, you know, you're playing all these teams. And the first game we played, we played a team from Virginia who was ranked third in the country. And while we were warming up, you know, we're out there. We're, you know, eight white kids, all of them really small, you know, and the coaching staff and players the other end were warming up and laughing. I mean, they were literally laughing. And I don't think our kids saw it, but as parents, you could see it, you know, and they're thinking, well, this will be an easy one. And I remember the game starting and, and Nico, Nico hit four threes in a row to put us up 12 to two. And they called the timeout. And they're I think they're kind of shell-shocked, like this can't happen. And so they went to a box and one and put a man on Nico and went zone. And so Nico said, "He, you know, Chris Jones, Ryland, you get over here. Nico just drive to one side and bring the help and kick it to Ryland. And Ryland had buried threes. They finally had to come to a zone and go to a man. They couldn't, and we ended up beating him by about 12. And it was a great lesson. And I think that's when Nico realized, and when I realized, because it was the first time he'd really played against that type of competition, was and they won four straight games and then they finally lost in the semis. But <clears throat> I realized Nico's really small, but he's competitive and he's skilled and he can shoot. And um I thought, OK, if he if he grows, you know, because you never know how big he's going to, you know, kids are going to get. And if he if he grows, he'll have a chance. And you don't ever know how, how athletic your son's going to be either. You know, because you just have no clue. You know, they could be athletes or they could be non-athletes. And, you know, Nico had had not had a chance because obviously two professional athletes in the family. But, you know, and then when he got to eighth grade and he started dunking the basketball and he was still fairly small. Um, but then he started to grow, and he got to six three. You know, he was hoping to be about six five, six six. And but you know, he, I kept telling him he kept wanting to go do that the bone test. You know, where they check your growth plates and tell you how big you're going to be. And I kept saying to him, why? You know, if you're only going to be five eleven, are you going to stop playing? He said, no. I said, then who cares how big you're going to be? You know, it doesn't. You're going to be what you're going to be. So let's forget about all that. You know, if you're if you're a six six point guard or a six three point guard, it it's what you got to work with. That's what you get. So, and he, you know, it was. That's when I realized he was going to be solid in fifth grade. And then, when he got to play his first year on the Under Armour Circuit at 15, and he was playing against high level guys, and he was, you know, one of the best ones out there, and he was dominating games and controlling games and and winning. You know, that's when I thought, okay, now he's got a chance. And then when he got to, you know, that last year, and he only, you know, he only played three years of high school because he graduated early. Um, that's when you realized, okay, he's got a real opportunity here. You know, did I think he was, you know, people are talking about the NBA and I always pushed that off because to me that's a pipe dream. Um, And, you know, his, his time at USA, his time in Italy, all those things blended together and he just, you know, but that's, that's when I first saw it was fifth grade.
0: Wow. What other kinds of, um, I guess, behaviors did you hope to install in Nico um, at a young age that you knew he would benefit from later on?
1: You know, like I talked about earlier through my experiences, you know, I was always, my dad was a coach and I was brought up to be, to play the game the right way. You know, if somebody is open, you passed it, you know, let them shoot. The game has changed, you know, in the, in the part of, if I'm a better shooter and I catch it and I'm open, maybe a little less open than the guy on the, on the next swing. But the guy guy that I'm throwing to is a non-shooter, you know, it's better if I take that shot. So I tried to instill that in Nico. I didn't want him to be like me. You know, I don't want you ever to defer to anybody. And my example is, I don't care if you're coming down to a three on two and you got Kobe on one side and Jordan on the other. If you come down and both those guys drop, the jump shot for you is the right decision. So, and then at an early age, um, because I wanted his confidence to be, you know, at a, at a really high level, I wanted him to believe in everything he did, you know, and, that talks about being willing to take the important shot and live with the results on a make or a miss is just part of the game, but you have to be willing to take it. Cause a lot of guys shy away from that moment. And in that moment, who are you will define who you're going to be in the future. And so he bought into that as well. And he bought into, you know, he's always played the right way. He's tried to make the right basketball play, but he also understands if I'm the best player on the floor in the moment, sometimes it's better for me to take a shot than to throw it to somebody else. And those were things I wanted him to understand um, all the way through, you know. Um, and then I think, you know, the other things we, in, we instilled in him were accountability. You know, accountability to me is something that's missing in, in, our, in, in today's, you know, everybody is, is entitled to be great. No, you're not. You're, you work to be great. And, you know, you can't blame your coach. You can't blame your teammates when things go south. You know, so Nico always knew, and I think it was harder on him because, you know, you you're, you come home and you want to complain about a game. You want to complain, man, so and so didn't do this, or the coach did this, and you're talking to two professional athletes who have both been brought up to say: first off, walk in your room, look in your mirror, and just ask yourself, what could I have done better today to help my team, not what your teammates could have done better. Then we'll have the talk about what you need to do to get yourself better and help your teammates get better as well. And he heard that from the time he was, you know, fifth, sixth grade. So he finally just stopped. He never complained about any teammate. He never complained about a coach because he knew there was, he wasn't going to get coddled at home where I've been on the AAU circuit and I've watched parents go to coaches. I've watched them go to directors of teams and programs and complain about my kids not playing enough. He needs to do this. He needs more shots. He needs more touches. And all you're doing is damaging your your kid. And so those lessons with Nico, you know, Nico was, you know, he's got all this praise. He's in Sports Illustrated. He's, you know, he's Gatorade Player of the Year. He's all these things. But yeah, but you still got to go pick up the dog poop in the backyard. You got to make your bed before you leave. There are things you have to do before you can go do what you want to do. And so he's he's been brought up being held accountable for everything. You know, freshman year in high school, if you don't have a 4.0, I'm going to take your phone away.
0: That's if devastating to this, a teenager. Devastating. Excuse me? That's devastating to a teenager.
1: Oh, it's his lifeline. Yeah. You know? And so, you know, and that, we we, we lightened that every year, you know, to where, okay, now it's got to be a 3.8 to a 3.6 because there was so much on his plate, you know, especially his last year because he was, he was finishing, he'd done a lot of summer school, but he had to take a full year of high school instead of just the three hours that all the other seniors were taking so we could get out early. You know, so we kind of lightened that load a little bit for him, but. He was always held accountable for those things. And, you know, if you want to drive a car, you got to have a, your GPA has got to be X. So your insurance isn't off the charts. All the things he had to go through that I think some kids don't have to, you know, he learned from that. And I think he's carried it over. You know, when he got to college, he knew I got to get a good night's sleep. You know, I remember mom and dad getting on me to get to bed earlier because the earlier I get to bed, that better sleep happens before midnight. You know, what I put in my body, all the things that we've in, you know gone into, he has remembered. And, and it's been, it's been good for him. And he'll, and he knows the nights he doesn't get good sleep. He knows it the next day or even the day after that, you know, that when, when it catches up to him and it's just paying attention. And so we've, those are the things we've taught him, you know, to be, to be aware of. And I think he's, he, he's been a good, you know, he's taken it and, you know, there are things he didn't like, obviously, you know, going through high school, you can't have your phone in your bedroom at night. Your phone gets plugged in, in the bathroom or in the kitchen. So we don't have to worry about you getting up and getting on it. Um, you know, all those things that he's had to deal with, you know, that uh, most kids hated, but you know, he just said, okay, that's what we want to do. That's the rules of the house. I'll follow the rules of the house.
0: That's great. Um, I've also noticed something about him that seems a little unique. Um, even just the videos that you have sent me just amazing. He looks like a straight up assassin, just ice water. He's, he's, Perfectly cool and calm in the situation, and I also notice in game situations, I don't really see him celebrating every one great move that he makes, like um I've heard you say <laughs> in the past like be a pro, act like a pro. Can you tell me what you mean by that?
1: Well, I think you you know in, in again, I go back to the social media and <clears throat> you you watch a game in high school and some kid'll make a hard move and a kid'll fall half the time this crowd runs onto the court or you know, they're making a big video of it and the kid's celebrating it and they're trying to embarrass the kid that fell. And I've always told Nico from the time he was little, you know, if you, if you get it, you know, you're going to have a nice dunk. You're going to dunk on somebody. You know, it, it doesn't just act like you've been there. Don't act like, wow, that was a great move. I got to dunk on somebody. I'm going to celebrate it and embarrass somebody because you're going to be on the other end of that. You know, do I want you to run from from conflict? You know, when somebody's talking trash, no, you don't ever have to do that. You don't ever start it. You know, you make a good play, you just move on. I mean, he had a play this year, last year, where he went down the middle. It was on ESPN. It was one of the top tens. You know, he went down the middle and he had a nice dunk. Two guys jumped, he dunked it, you know, and his bench is up celebrating guys or something. And Nico just turned and ran down the floor. And I think I said, if you want to be different, everybody celebrates. Everybody tries to show somebody up. You get set apart by not doing that, you know, and I think that's what caught Chris Ballard's eye for the Sports Illustrated article. Nico had a dunk in it between his eighth grade and ninth grade year in that summer where he went up and dunked on a kid at a camp. And the thing that shocked everybody was all he did was turn around and go find his guy to guard him. He didn't, there wasn't a celebration and partly because Nico didn't know what to do because he'd never dunked it before. (laughs) And so he, you know, I said, man, you didn't even celebrate. He goes, dad, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he goes, cause it had never happened. And it was, but it, I think you, you, you teach that lesson to a kid. And I've always told him the one lesson. I said, bud, if you respect the game, the game will respect you. If you respect other players, they'll respect you. You get to teach people how to treat you. You know, if you're an ass on the court, people assume you're that same off the court. So when you walk into a gym and you're going to a camp, and this was when in high school, you're going to a tournament, you want to be the guy that walks in and, go, and the people go, man, there's Nico. Damn, he's good. Let's go hang out with him for a little bit because they know you're a nice guy. You don't want to be the guy that walks in and they go, hey, there's Nico. He's good. Yeah, but he's a jerk. I don't want to go talk to him. You know, there's a difference. And I think a lot of that he picked up during my time with the Jazz because I brought him to every single game, home game he was at, And I'd bring him two hours early. He'd sit on the jazz bench or he'd sit on the opposing bench. And he got to soak up watching all these pros get ready. You know, and he he, on the way home, he'd say, Man, I watched so-and-so tonight. You know, I watched this guy warm up. This is what he did, this is how he mentally prepared. And you're talking about a nine or 10-year-old doing this. And so he was soaking that up at a young age. Not only that, but he was seeing how did guys treat him as a kid down there? You know, you ask him who his favorite jazz player is. Ronnie Price is my favorite player because Ronnie Price would come over after he got done working out, see Nico there. He'd come over and sit with them for five minutes. Nico, how are you doing? How are your grades? You listen to your parents at home? You being good? You doing these things? Good. How's the basketball going? And he'd get to that. And he'd talk to him, And Nico just thought it was the coolest thing. And then there were guys on that team, and I won't mention them, but were just jerks. And, you know, even some of the superstars. And so Nico was like, and I, again, I told him, if you get to that level, which you'll have an opportunity to, If you get there, you've learned how to treat people. And the one thing I can say about my son is in high school when he would travel and he would play games and every gym he went to was full because the other student section would want to come and harass him. And, you know, you're talking about 500 kids in the student section from the time he walked on the floor to the time the game ended, just all over him. But the game would end. He would shake hands with the opposing team and all the student section would run across the floor and they'd all want to take pictures. And he would stand there and smile and laugh and joke with these kids. And I would say, and this is where my immaturity comes in. I'd say, Nico, why the hell would you stand and take pictures of those guys that yelled at you the whole game? And he said, dad, it's the student section. It's not personal. That's their job. They're supposed to harass me. You know? And he said, if they're not harassing me, I'm obviously not playing well, or I'm not a good player. They don't harass anybody that's not, they only harass the good guys, you know? And I was like, okay. He said, they just want to get pictures afterwards, you know? And I'm like, Okay. I learned, I learned something right there. Cause he, he, he just, to him, it was never personal. Some, trust me, some of the things they said were very personal, but to him, it was just like, they're just trying to get under my skin. I'm not going to take that to heart. And so he's just a, that's where he's, and he's really calm with that. And those are things he's always been blessed with.
0: That's such a cool story. Um, one last thing I want to touch on, um, with Nico, especially you, um, you mentioned a few things that we deal with in the health world quite a bit, and it's, it's the difference between making a goal that's based on a behavior versus um, a goal that's based on an outcome. So oftentimes, somebody will come to us and say, my goal is to lose you know, 20 pounds next month, or I want to gain this amount of muscle. And less often, we hear people say, you know what, I'm going to put on my running shoes every single day, or I'm going to hit the weights every other day. There's a difference between a, an outcome goal and a behavior goal. Can you can you kind of touch on that and why you've helped Nico develop the work ethic that's based on a behavior versus based on an outcome?
1: Yeah, and and it's what we've talked about, you know, going through the daily grind of it and knowing it's a, there's a big picture. You know, I think what you're trying to get to is okay. One, how do I find a plan that's good for me? So for Nico that was a basketball plan. I can't just go to a, a any certain trainer I got to go a guy that understands what my goals are. So you find that and you set those and you go down that path. Another thing is Nico was blessed with having, and you've been, you know, you've had dinner at our, you know, been around us. So, you know, Gaia is a, is a health fanatic. She doesn't miss a day at the gym. She doesn't miss. And so Nico, who comes home, we don't have sugars in the house. You know, he's, you know, people laugh. So Nico, what's, you know, go get a, go get a candy bar. His friends are here. He says, well, the only thing we have in the fridge are health bars. If you want a health bar, I can get you one, but we don't have sodas. We don't have, you know, Oreos, we don't have, <laughs> excuse me, we don't have these things because my mom doesn't believe in sugars, um, you know? And so his his he was brought up with, if you can do this, it will keep your body running clean and you'll perform better, you know? He's still a kid. Do we still buy Oreos once in a while for him? Of course. Does he still get ice cream? Does he still get the, yeah. But those are on occasions where he realizes, okay, I can, I can cheat today and do this. But for the most part, the behavior is, if I eat right, my body's going to do this when I go to the gym to train. It's going to do this when I go to lift the weights. I can add muscle mass by doing this, by eating, getting my protein shakes, getting, adding these 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 snacks between meals. So you have to, but that's a trained. Most people don't want to take that time to go through all that. That's why you find people that go on a diet and, you know, they can never make it through it because they just can't be consistent with that diet. And a lot of them don't know what to diet with and how to diet either. And that's where you guys come into play and help them. But it's hard for people to follow that um, because it's, a, it's, it's not just a diet. It's a life-changing thing. You're going to do this forever. It's not going to do this for a month to lose 20 pounds. Because if you go back to what you were doing, it's going to come right back on. So it's a, it's a life thing that, okay, Nico, get to bed at 10 or earlier if you can, which he doesn't, you know, because he's a kid. But knowing if I go to bed at 12 and I got to get up at 8, I'm not getting great. You're getting eight hours. But you're better going at 10 to 6, in my opinion, you know. And and he, so he's learned that. And he knows it. He's, he, he flat out knows that I I, I I feel better when I get to bed earlier. Even if I get up at 6 or 7, I still feel better getting that earlier sleep. And he's always eating well. A good story there is, you know, at Arizona when they recruited and they talked about, you know, coming up there and all the players put on weight because they all eat so well. Well, it was a real downgrade for Nico, you know, from what he was eating at home because not many places are you getting – an appetizer, a pasta or a risotto, and then and then a meat with chicken or steak or fish, and, and a salad or or potatoes afterwards. You know, Nico's eating that every night, and and he, he lost out on that, so he you know he put on some weight, but then he, he lost it all again too, because you can't you know they're just not eating as well as they should be. But I think those are the things you're you're trying to train people to do is is a behavior that will lead you to the outcome you want, and and it's hard for people to understand that.
0: I love that. Yeah. And Gaia is a wonderful cook. I've had her dinners before and they're amazing. Um, can you just comment? Um, what what was the difference you saw growing up? I remember, I think you guys told me about this, where as Nico was coming up, you would see some of the other, you know, young athletes eating a bunch of sugar and 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 crap um, versus Nico, who's just, you know, it wasn't one philosophy, like you said, it was just, you're eating real food and that's, that's all you really need to do. Could you tell a difference in the performance?
1: Oh, of course, you know, and you see, it's the, the toughest thing on, you know, kids is especially you look at the A and I'm going to use the AAU circuit because it's the, <clears throat> it's where most kids get their exposure, but you know, at the younger age, you go to these tournaments and the only thing they have in the gym is, you know, you can get a hot dog, you can get a packet of Skittles, you can get M&Ms, you can get Milky Way bar, you can get all these candy and you can get all the the, the, the sugar drinks, but they don't serve anything healthy and so you know we tried to travel with you know okay let's get him some sandwiches that are at least solid we'll bring him to the game he can eat him in between games get him away from all this stuff because how do you expect your body to perform if you're putting a pack of skittles and a coke you know when you played one game at 10 you got to come back at 12 30 or one to play another one and that's all you fuel your body with and so that's just part of i think it's it's part of the culture that they, you know, I think the gyms that decide, hey, we're going to put some healthy stuff in. Hey, find it. How hard is it to, you know, make a rice bowl? How hard is it to get a healthy salad for somebody? How hard is it to get something with proteins the kids to digest and get back out and play? You know, but they don't want to do that because of the cost. We can make more money doing this than we can doing that. It's not about the kids. And those are just tough things. Nico. But, you know, you watch, Nico even pointed out the other day. He was watching an Iverson documentary. And, I'm, and Iverson's walking in with a bag of chips and two grape sodas before the game, you know, and I used to tell him, there's always an anomaly. There's always somebody that's completely different that can do that. Allen Iverson was 160 pounds and could, could go all day on two on a bag of chips and two grape sodas. Obviously wow. you most 99% of the people can't do that, you know? So he's the one guy that could play all those years, be a great player, And I I guarantee you, he learned how to eat better as his career went on, but he just knew he could do that because that's what his body, he he could perform on anything, you know? So most guys aren't like that. Yeah,
0: I totally agree. Well, Pace, this has been an amazing conversation. I can't let you leave without answering our uh, classic questions. So um, this is something Bethany and I ask each other at the end of every week. Um, The first question for you is what is one thing that you learned or changed your mind about this week?
1: learned or changed my mind about, um, well, I learned the NBA is going to allow visits for these kids and I'm happy they changed their mind about it. Cause it's going to help my son. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's great. That's a great thing to learn. I love it. Uh, what is one thing you wished you had done a little bit better this week?
1: Um, I wish I'd have gotten to the gym more because I had people here in town. And so I got stuck entertaining and uh so far and I uh, over the weekend and and yesterday. So um and at my age, you know, I turned 60 this year, just at last in September. So nice. Congratulations. To, uh, yeah. And uh I gotta and it's it's the one thing I've learned it's tougher to stay in shape as you get older. So, you know, and I'm just trying to stay in the same ballpark. I know I'll never be close, but in the ballpark of my wife is all I gotta be. So <laughs> we've done um, a great I'm job. Just, with that's, that. <laughs> I gotta get back to the gym this week. That's
0: awesome. Uh what is one thing you're very proud of this week.
1: Um, You know, I think listening to um, Nico come out of all his interviews that he's had and feel very good about him because, you know, I think he's a well-spoken, educated young man who can talk to just about anybody because he's been in this world for so long with adults um, and dealing with adults most of his life. Um, And I'm really proud of, of how he's handled that because it's a stressful situation And he he's handled it extremely well. And as a parent, you know, you just feel good about watching your kid um, feel good about who he is and how he's handled this tough situation. That's so cool.
0: What is one um, final takeaway you'd like our listeners to um, use and apply in their lives with this conversation?
1: Um, I think what we talked about earlier, I think the biggest thing and I work on it daily and and Gaia gets on me all the time about it. And it's something I'm in a I'm a work in progress, obviously, but living every day in the moment, enjoying what's in front of us. You know, I think we have so many good things around us, even going through the pandemic. There are some positive things that we're learning uh, about who we are and who your family is and who your friends are. Um and I think if if we all did that more, um, you know, lived in that moment and 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 and, and tried to help as many people as possible throughout the day i think those are things that i i I try to live by and i try to teach nico and i try to you know be with friends that are like that too because i think the more we do that the better the world is and the better the better your life will be and so that's uh doing that is is my biggest thing is i'm trying to do every day is to enjoy every day um enjoy the blessings and and, and and the good things that are in my life and stop worrying about the stress you have for tomorrow or the month from now or two months from now. And just, you know, it's, it's better to live right now.
0: That's amazing. That is beautiful advice. Pace Mannion, this has been an amazing conversation. Um, I really appreciate your time and your content. I appreciate the way you guys as a family um, are living. And I think there's so much wisdom that we can all take out of this. So thank you very much for your time.
1: Casey, appreciate you, man. Hope to talk soon. Absolutely. All right. You too.
0: Thank you very much for listening to boundless body radio. We'll see you soon.